You are now entering the transit zone. It just seemed that there was an overwhelming evidence to show that climate change was happening. We could see it happening in front of our eyes as well, yet our government was still sort of bobbing us off with slippery slogans and not acting and muddying the waters of the debate. And so I had this growing angst and growing anxiety and growing frustration. And I think it got to the point where I thought, right, I've, I've got to just do something now. And it actually was before the 2019 election. And I thought, well, if, if our political leaders are, you know, not doing their duty and they're not, you know, I just felt that there, there was an abrogation of the, the government's duty to care for and ensure that the population safety and security was foremost and prosperity. So I felt, well, if our leadership is failing us, then I've got to do something myself and we can do that in our community. Welcome back to The Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Margot Kingston in Comboy, New South Wales. And Tim Dunlop in Southbank in Melbourne. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we record and produce these podcasts, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Beerpai people of the Port Macquarie region of New South Wales. We pay respect to their elders. Just over a year ago, on the 21st of May 2022, Australia experienced a seismic shift in its political landscape with a federal election that saw six community independents, six women, elected to Parliament by defeating sitting Liberal Party members in affluent Blue Ribbon seats in Sydney, Melbourne and Perth. Late in the campaign, the media catching up on what the polls were saying about those seats, by way of a shorthand tag, started calling them teals because some of their campaigns, not all, featured turquoise, not teal livery. That teal's label has stuck. The voice we heard at the top of this podcast belongs to one of those six, Dr Sophie Scomps, who spoke to us way back in October 2021 in the Transit Zone, before she even became a candidate. Sophie became the independent MP for McKellar, north of and adjacent to Warringah, where Zali Stegall had defeated former Prime Minister Tony Abbott in the previous federal election. Stegall was re-elected in 2022. So what's it been like entering the crucible of Canberra politics as a community independent with very limited support staff and no political party backing? Sophie Scomps, welcome back to The Transit Zone. Thank you so much for having me back. It's great to be here. So Sophie, I see you as unique among the new community independents because you weren't recruited by the local Independence Day movement. You co-founded Voices for McKellar. You created McKellar Rising to find a candidate. You couldn't find one because McKellar was considered unwinnable, so you stepped up. So take us back to the moment you decided to take the plunge and tell us how you and your family has adjusted to that transformative moment in your life. <laughs> Thanks, Margot. Um, yeah, so I think it, the decision to actually run occurred over a matter of months and I think there was this growing sense within the community that they really wanted somebody who was one of them who was a community member we had talked about getting somebody with a high profile because maybe it was easier to have that name recognition and very much the community said no no we don't want that we want somebody from within the community that we can trust and we who we know will stand up for for our views and values and um I think just because I was so heavily involved in all that grassroots, that uh, movement, is that people were asking me, why, why aren't you standing? And I think in, uh, in the long run, somebody who was a GP, who was very embedded in their community because I was a GP and very deeply so, I think I ended up being the, um, you know, the, the one who was left standing. <laughs> and obviously, you know, you're a GP with a young family and a happy life. What's it been like? I assume you've got an extremely supportive husband. And kids who are prepared to go with it as well. Look, I would say that the rug was definitely pulled out from underneath the family. It's like nothing that mm. we have experienced before and it has been incredibly busy. And I think a year in now or just over a year in now, it's time to have a look at how we can get a greater sort of balance in family life. We work. I'm not sure if it's possible, but it has been extraordinarily exciting and it has been an 
an amazing privilege, but also need to know that I need to be to be here for the long run. Everyone keeps saying it's it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. So need to build in that family time, need to build in holidays and breaks. But that's just not talking about me. I know that the entire team has been doing their utmost for many, many months now. And so we just recently had a really good replanning, refocusing, re-strategizing time. And I think really important to that is building in that time of rest and making sure that checking in on each other, making sure we're okay. And everyone is sort of working within their means, not stretched to the limit the entire time. Now, I understand that you've got a lot of volunteers staffing your electorate office to sort of help out with the reduced staffing under Labor. So could you just take me through how you engage with the community, how you enact participatory democracy in McKellar? Thanks, Margaret. Well, just on the um, issue of volunteers, we're very lucky we, we do have a community service that's expected and that's looking after constituents. I always think there's two parts to this role. There's the parliamentary policy role and then there's looking after constituents in the community um, for issues where we can, like NDIS and Centrelink and things like that. So there, we have this amazing electorate office team and um, I think people are realising now when they ring our office and somebody answers the phone that they do actually have somebody on the line who's trying to help them and really cares. And a big part of that as well is we are still very reliant and very lucky to have wonderful volunteers who give up some of their time just to support the electorate office, um, doing amazing, amazing things. I don't think we would survive without them, but it really does bring that connection back to community as well and sort of gives it that feel that it's an open office. But that's just a little part of it. We sort mm. of look at that community engagement in um in as a circle, as a sphere in a way. So starting with listening, as you know, the, the voices movement was integral to the whole community independent movement. So really everything needs to start with listening and um, and then translating that into what are the top priorities for the community, the views and values, how do we translate that into policy, how do we enact that into policy and try and bring people um, from the community into that. So when I introduced my first private members bill on ending jobs for mates, um, that integrity measure. We invited everyone down to be a part of that day as well because really it was the community that stood up and voted for greater integrity at the last election. And then, of course, the last sort of quadrant of that, that cycle is feeding back to the community so people are actually aware of what I'm doing on their behalf so that they can then provide feedback as well. Yes, you're on track. No, you're not on track. But trying to do this process in an iterative way and I guess all the way along where we can try and include people, try and communicate to people and listen. I noticed with you and others, like you do these politics in the pub and I'm going for a surf and all this stuff, you can't imagine big party MPs doing that because they'd be attacked. Do, <laughs> do you, it's sort of so sort of scarily transparent. Do, do you have much negative stuff? Have you sort of transcended that in a way? Not within the community in the electorate. I think there really is a sense and I think that's, you know, starting with listening and starting with trying to work with, with community is that uh, I really do feel buoyed by the community. People who chat to me in the community, um, you know, and they know that I'm one of them as well. They've seen me around mm. for years quite often. So it is, uh, people are very, um, what's the word, polite and respectful and supportive, I would say. And it's lovely actually sometimes having those touch points when you are just out, when I am just out in the community and people saying, oh, I had this young woman not long ago who was serving me at a cafe and I could sort of see a light of recognition in her eye. And she had to ask me my name for my coffee. And she just said, oh, I just have to say, I just, thank you so much. I feel like, I really do feel like I'm in safe hands now. Oh, I felt very <laughs> good. I thought that's just lovely. But it's more that type of interaction that I have in the community. Um, I would say online is a far broader community. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so that can be different, but still it's very supportive and, uh, in many ways. But you always have those jump-ons of the trolls and things like that. Can I ask about The Voice? I assume you went to the election supporting The Voice? Yes, that's correct. So McKellar is pro-voice. I assume you're having, you know, the standard conversations. But the big problem here is, you know, we've gone right back to Hansenism, anti-elite. You've now got, you know, One Nation, Liberals, Nationals and, and Lydia Thorpe saying it's all an elite thing. Similar to what you said in October 21, that when Morrison said, oh, it's inner city, lard, people who care about climate change. 
I noticed that, though, that when you and Kylie went out to the Liverpool Plains, you got a very big, to, to listen about um, coal seam gas, you, you got a, a very positive reaction from the local media. I'm just wondering whether you, elite lot, are thinking about how to, how to reach out and, and counteract this Advance Australia propaganda, which is, you know, targeting Kate Cheney, targeting West Farmers, targeting sporting clubs, any way that you can turn that around, do you think? Oh, again, I think what's happening on the ground within communities and the conversations people are having are very different from what's happening at that kind of messy national level. And people are very happy to engage in a very respectful and constructive way about this. And it, it will be, it will come down again to every single conversation that people have with their friends and family. This will be decided. The invitation was to the Australian people. It wasn't to politicians. And I think my role is just to, is, is one, to provide that information. I recently sent out a flyer to every household in the electorate, which just notified people that there was this referendum coming up, that they may have heard about it, well, just letting them know what it was all about, what it meant. It wasn't pro yes or pro no, um, just provided information. And on the back it had a copy of the Uluru Statement of the Heart so that everyone would have that opportunity to read it and, and see for themselves what it was, read for themselves what it is that they will actually be voting on and, and read that there is this sense of generosity and very constructive very hopeful way of sort of, you know, reaching out their hand. And I think once people read the Uluru Statement of the Heart, that will that will help to, um, I think, shape the way the conversation continues. And I, I do think that the community, the community um, engagement on this is just kicking in now. We still have several months before the referendum. We know that people's appetite for continuing to talk about things like elections and referendums probably has you know, they're more interested in the lead up to it. So I think that people will be far more engaged uh, on the ground as we get closer and closer. On a practical level, is the fact that the Liberals have turned their back on The Voice and are running a very anti-elite campaign, does that make it easier for you at the next election? In other words, in a way, the Liberals, having suffered the loss of their, their blue ribbon seats, is there their position on this really saying we're not going to get those anymore, we're going to go in a different direction? Yes, I think it could be. I think that on the whole Australians were very tired, particularly at the last election, of that really kind of divisive, destructive type of um, politics. I think what people are looking for is bringing our, country, our nation together, constructive solutions um, to those challenges. I think people are very tired of that divisive and nasty type of politics. And I don't really feel like I need to engage in that. And we see how powerful it is, the community independent model. Really those conversations, one-on-one -on -one conversations on the ground is where the power is. I do think that the current opposition hasn't really learnt their lesson uh, from the last election, that people were feeling cut out and shut out and not listened to and taken for granted. It looks like that's persisting. Sophie, we all remember only too well during that campaign in 2022 how the coalition propaganda said that you lot were a party. Remember that drumbeat, you're really just a party in disguise pretending to be independents. I'm intrigued to know just what it's been like working with other members, not just the Teals, so-called Teals, but other independents on the crossbench. I've noted that you each have different priorities. We've seen the combined presses in the Parliament House foyer there, but you all seem to have different priorities, slightly different emphases. What have communications been like? How does that crossbench actually operate every day in real politics? Oh, yes. Great question. People are fascinated by this because there was that whole rhetoric, are they a party? What are they? And it's a, it's very new. We've never seen a crossbench this size before. And particularly, you know, a whole swathe of us coming in at the one time. And really, we didn't know each other beforehand at all. But I say that we're, we're very, very lucky in that we do work really well and really constructively together. I do think that they are wonderful women and there are wonderful men on the crossbench as well. And we're very, very lucky in that regard not being a party because ultimately it comes down, when we're making a decision on how to vote, it does come down to what we feel um, our community wants and what they would expect of us. But in the meantime, what we can have is this close relationship with really robust debate where we can challenge and discuss and, you know, 
put up different ideas or I think there's very direct and frank discussions between all of us because we are very, our communities are very aligned on many, many things, but there are nuances and subtleties that are quite different. So you'll see sometimes, and I think it's quite random in some ways, you won't be able to analyse, is that we vote together all together on some things and other things will vote very differently or one will be out. So I think it has been quite hard for the media to try and, you know, pinpoint whether we're a party or not because on our voting record we do vote quite differently in some regards but we are very aligned, as you see, with those press conferences that we might do together on some really big issues like integrity, like whistleblowers, like harmful advertising and climate change. You know, we are very strongly aligned on those things. I want to get a sense of the texture, the character of what actually goes on between politicians in that crucible. You remember the great series Total Control. We we saw fictionally a whole lot of disparate people, including independents, getting together in a room to try and decide the balance of power. What's it like? Is there the nastiness that we imagine is there? You describe robust and frank. Is frank code for being very tough with each other? No, no, it's not. It's being honest with each other and being respectful with one another and I think we do really respect each other's views but we do get together once a week to have a discussion that's more just to let each other know what we're working on heads up this is happening what are you thinking about government's new legislation that they're bringing out that type of thing look we we get on very very well I have deep respect for all of them I think they're all lovely we it is incredible to be amongst these women at this time and I would regard all of them as friends but friends who are honest friends as well and so are willing to sort of I think deeply discuss issues and the pros and cons of different ways ways of voting or acting as well. So it is really getting down to the nitty gritty of why you're voting, how you are, and being able to explain it and challenging things. I think it's a really healthy way of doing politics and a very constructive way. And that's in amongst ourselves. And then, you know, individually or as groups, we might be meeting with other ministers, lots of other ministers, other groups as well. We have a crossbench meeting where we're also meeting with senators. So Lydia Thorpe will come along, Jackie Lambie and others, and David Pocock. So there's a lot of robust discussion and a lot of it is supporting one another to also know what's coming up and, you know, letting people know how they'll also be voting or what their thoughts are on a particular topic. Sophie, question time has improved, but not very much. And I know that you, as a group, managed to get better access to questions for question time. But it still seems to be a piece of theatre that's pretty hollow, particularly the Dorothy Dixes, which halve the time. And it's just partisan propaganda coming out of the Dorothy Dixes. Do you support the whole idea of question time at all? And what are the prospects for future reform? Look, I do... I do support Question Time. I think there's a lot of people. I'm surprised at the number of people who tune into Question Time and watch it live. But I do think it's an opportunity for the the government, the opposition and the crossbench to, to bring issues up that are important to them and also to communicate with the broader Australian public. The Dorothy Dixes, look, yes, they are sort of tiresome, but it is the government trying to explain their agenda. So I understand it to a particular degree. Also, you have the opposition, which might just ask the same questions over and over again. It does get kind of tiresome, and there usually is some sort of campaign that they're drilling down into that they're trying to communicate. I do note, though, when somebody from the crossbench is asking a question, usually it's silent in the chamber, and we get a respectful answer. So we typically would hear, we're trying to find out some information, we're using it for that purpose, or trying to also make a, a an issue known to our communities and across Australia sort of point the the spotlight on this issue so that people are building that conversation around that. So it does have an important role to spotlight issues for crossbench as well, but also for us to, you know, let the government know that we're we're thinking about these things, where we do want good answers on this. And also it doesn't just stop at question time. Question time is sort of that communication with the public in many regards. But there's many conversations that come off from question time as well and many more discussions. Just picking up on something you were saying there in response to Peter, do you think there was an advantage for the crossbench that it didn't actually have the balance of power after the 2022 election, that it saved you a lot of grief at the end of the day? I think for me personally, yes. I think as a first-timer learning your way through Parliament and really learning how to best represent your community. I think that 
being able to focus on my community rather than what the the Labour Party wants to do, focus on the agenda that my community wants me to, to propagate has been really important. And I also think that I've been able to do that really important role of holding the government to account through question time questions, through press conferences. And we have had a lot of negotiations and discussions with government as it is, because even though we don't hold the balance of power or I don't hold the balance of power in the lower house, there's still a lot of negotiations that need to happen in the Senate because they don't have the balance of power there. So that means that they are listening because they know that they need to get across these issues. And also the door is quite open from ministers. When there are constructive amendments, they're willing to listen, which has been really good. So I feel like we have had a big role individually and collectively in making uh, bills and legislation a lot better and also being able to prosecute issues which neither side and the government would not touch. So things like the obesity and overweight epidemic was something that hadn't been touched by either side. Making greater calls for greater integrity, so the Ending Jobs for Mates bill that I also called for, is something that we need to keep highlighting and bringing to um, bringing to the fore. And other, many, many other things. I mean, the things at the top of mind, just because I was thinking about it this morning, is whistleblower protections. So the role of a crossbencher really is holding the government to account and bringing new ideas, constructive ideas to the parliament, working constructively with all sides of um, parliament to come to really good, robust solutions and make sure that we're getting best policy where we can and not letting, not just letting things go through quickly at the wave of a hand. They really have to be scrutinised and looked at. So if you had had the balance of power, how exactly does all that change? How does the dynamic change? I don't quite understand why you couldn't still do that stuff. Uh, yeah, so I've, you, you're probably right there. I've just been focusing what my on what I haven't actually reflected too much on what it would have been right. like. I'm just reflecting on what it is like currently and, and what we've been able to do currently. I do think that as an independent uh, who is not in partnership with the government, I have been able to have a greater freedom to stick up for the community and keep bringing those issues on behalf of the community. Isn't the real problem if you had balance of power, I mean, I totally agree with you, it was absolutely imperative you didn't really, is because that would be crunch time immediately for what was a, what was a Liberal electorate. Yeah. Where, so you, you wouldn't have the chance to, to show where you were at and how your approach was different. Yes, look, I agree. There was a lot uh, in the lead up to the election. There was a lot of effort to try and get community independence to peg which way they would go, who they would peg their um, flag to. And really, I think it's been good to have this term to to grow the idea of a community independent and that fact that we are an independent, that I'm not leaning particularly one way or the other, that I can sway either way depending on what the community wants on various issues. I do think it has been good to, to bed that down, that that idea of what a community independent actually stands for and can do for their community. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm really interested in how you're using the power that you do have in the parliament and uh, in the community to get things done. As you say, it's a, it's a kind of a new experience for Australian politics, so it's interesting to say. So I was really pleased to say, for instance, that you've got together with the idea of doing the citizens' assembly around the housing issue, because I've been a kind of a champion of this kind of idea for a long time now. So I'm really thrilled to say that it's happening. Whose idea was it to do this? And has the Albanese government agreed to fund it at this stage? No, the Albanese government hasn't yet agreed to fund it. Um, we do think that it's such a good idea and would you know, stimulate debate on this and come up with some good ideas that we would try to get it uh, funded philanthropically. I think the issue came up discussing where, where there is a vexed issue where we feel that neither side has really progressed for many, many years on a particular topic, a citizen assembly is a really good way to move forward. So initially when we were having discussions as a group, I think there was a number of us who were quite interested in citizens' assemblies. When it first came up, um, we were discussing whether it would be a good idea to use it for thinking about donation reform and electoral reform, that type of thing. But really when it came down to such a vexed issue that is so important to the uh, Australian community right now, housing just was a no-brainer and we know that it's stuck currently. That we're at a bit of an impasse. For many, many years, um, we've been going in the wrong direction and there's greater inequality when it comes to housing. So 
really we need to um, re-kickstart that conversation with fresh ideas and who better to do that than the people from Australia. So I think initially it did come from Allegra thinking that donation reform would be a good way to use the Citizens' Assembly and then we had a number of conversations and decided that housing was the way to go. I think it's a good choice because obviously the housing issue is just going to be a huge issue in Australian politics for the foreseeable future, I think. So it's great to have this potentially there as a kind of a circuit breaker. Allegra Spender's comment that I trust that Australian people can come together, listen to each other and come up with solutions that balance the different interests of mortgage holders, renters and homeowners. And I think that's exactly what something like a community assembly uh, is is able to do. But again, this sort of goes to the whole process of like how power works and how you relate to the broader electorate as well as your own community. How do you deal with it if the solutions that the assembly comes up with are really the sort of solutions that would be rejected by your electorate or maybe Allegra's electorate or something? I've noticed she's been very critical of, say, the Greens' approach to the housing issue at the moment. And how do you take that information from that group of Australian citizens if they come up with the stuff that, you you know, you basically don't agree with it, whether it's, I don't know, rental caps or ending negative gearing or something like that. How do you integrate that into, to use your word, listen to that seriously? And then, you know, do you feel an obligation to sell that to your electorate? Do you go back and say, well, actually, they've come up with this idea and I think that's a good idea? How does that work? Yeah, so a couple of things. I think that the issue of housing is a big issue for people across all socioeconomic groups because in my election of McKellar, there's pockets of great wealth, but there's also people doing it very tough and um, right. and housing, uh, you know, a lack of affordable housing and community housing, that type of thing. So the other issue I would say is that although there may be families that already have a home, people are also starting to worry about what this means for their children. Their children are starting to move away. It's breaking up families and networks. So it is, it is becoming an issue for people across, you know, all sectors of our society, and and people can see that it is becoming problematic. I think what happens, a citizens' assembly, because you are bringing people together like a jury in many ways, giving them all the information so they can make informed decisions, it does give a lot of legitimacy to what their recommendations are, and I think it's a really important way to spark debate again, to come up with ideas that potentially neither side would otherwise touch. I think it's a powerful way to introduce new ideas into a a debate where there's it's stuck and there's an impasse. Um, And I guess that's the really important thing. If if a body of Australian people does come up with a particular uh, solution, then that does need to be listened to seriously. Hey, Sophie, I was just thinking, um, you could do a Citizens' Assembly in McKellar. See what McKellar yeah. comes up with. Well, exactly. I mean, this the Citizens' Assembly that's been proposed is a National Citizens' Assembly, but I've also been thinking and others have been thinking as well, why don't we do something similar in, um, in McKellar? See what, see what people think of. Think of it. You're listening to another Transit Zone podcast. Our guest is the independent MP for the Sydney seat of McKellar, Dr Sophie Scott. Sophie, of course, integrity was one of the key planks from the community independence and we know that you were pretty actively involved in the design of the National Anti-Corruption Commission, which just opened for business. So that was a huge achievement, really. Climate change may be another matter, which we'll go on to discuss in a moment. I noticed uh, on Twitter that you had a real whack at Matt Keane recently when he went to defend Gladys Berejiklian after the findings of the New South Wales ICAC. But of course, the big one is robo-debt. How are you personally, and what you sense within the crossbench and the and the broader parliament as you watch Peter Dutton try and whitewash, I suppose is a decent term, the, the robo-debt situation. I've read your submission to the Select Committee on Parliamentary Standards. What are the prospects for further reform and improvement in parliamentary standards? Thank you. Yes, look, I think we can continue to improve and we should always be striving to improve. I think this 
argument that because uh, politicians' behaviour wasn't criminal doesn't mean it wasn't corrupt. And when you look at corruption in the political context, it really is um, it really means not acting in the best interests of the people who elected you or or in the best interests of Australians um, and acting instead in self-interest or party interest, putting that above the interests of Australians. And that is what came out of the, um, the ICAC investigation into Gladys and Daryl Maguire. And so I think it was really misleading um, for people to say that we had to wait two years to find that Gladys didn't do anything criminal. That wasn't the question in the first place. It was whether she had behaved in a way that was politically corrupt and not acting in the best interests of Australians. And that is what was found. Serious corrupt conduct was what was found. So... Look, I do think we need to strengthen. There's Where there's humans, there's always corruption. All of us can be corrupted in some way or tempted in some way. So it really is about strengthening the integrity infrastructure uh, for our democracy and for our political system, which is why, as I said, I picked one aspect of There's many different aspects that we can look at. And, of course, the National Anti-Corruption Commission at the federal level is just a start. We know that it does inquiries or investigates allegations of corruptions after it's occurred, what we need to do is actually build in prevention so they're not happening in the first place, which Mm. is why I started looking at the Ending Jobs for Mates bill, which was all about making sure there was an independent, transparent and robust appointments process. So we weren't just getting, you know, cronies or um, something that was politically expedient or good for a party policy in a particular way. And we've seen that with PwC, there's sort of this, it's it's been creep, creeping in where we're no longer can tr- trust the institutions that underpin our democracy. And we should be able to, Australians should be able to trust that absolutely the best person for these really important roles are being selected. And that means it must be transparent and independently done. RoboDebt has a way to run, doesn't it, Sophie? And we have the sealed chapter, which just has aroused so much speculation as as to who actually is within the sealed chapter. Do you agree with keeping that level of secrecy despite what Commissioner Holmes directed, the non-publication order? How do you see that playing out now? Surely that secrecy will be cracked eventually and are we entitled as citizens in a democracy to see that play out openly? Look, I I feel that it will all be revealed in the end is my my sense of it because I feel that the reason it was done was so that it didn't undermine further... um, investigations and charges and things like that. There is a definitely a long way to go. I know we need to look at what has happened within our public service, which has been hollowed out and where the people fearing for their jobs might be not providing that frank and fearless advice as we would hope and expect, but more acting in a political, you know, supporting the political um, leadership of the day. There is a long way to go. There is a very long way to go with this, and I think it's uh, a la- it will be a landmark in our democracy and our political history. We're looking at this and um, making sure that we come out of this with a much stronger democracy, a much stronger political system, much stronger public service system to advise government. It would be really transformative to see, for example, a former prime minister charged criminally. It would be. <laughs> <laughs> I do think there's further questions uh, that need answering. So I feel like it'll become, I feel like, like you said, there is more, there is further for this to run and more will be revealed. And and hopefully we build in a a more robust system in the future. One of the things um, RoboDebt brought up was about the role of the media in all of this, what, what the way a government can work with, to use the term from the report, um, friendly journalists. Um, to push an agenda. This must have been one of the big learning curves for you becoming a parliamentarian is that relationship with the media. How has your opinion of the media changed? Your understand, not opinion, but your understanding of their role changed since you've been in parliament? Uh, Good good question. I think... um there are definite there are journalists who are very interested in particular issues and very interested to get your frank feedback and to report that um, you know honestly and earnestly as well. Uh, there have been examples where you know, where you go to particular media and you know an interview is likely to be a setup for a particular narrative that they're running. But I do right. think it's important to um, still appear 
in across a diversity of a diverse range of media so that people who don't who who are listening to that type of media are also hearing a different perspective and a different point of view and uh, I, I feel like that is working okay but you do have to have your eyes open and be aware of what the underlying kind of interest might be in asking me to do an interview yeah i'm also curious about my feeling is we wouldn't have you and the other independents on the crossbench if it hadn't been for the existence of social media that if you just had to rely on the mainstream you probably wouldn't have got the necessary exposure would you agree with that and then i guess the follow-up question to that is what role do you see social media playing for the future of the independents in general Look, I agree. I do think social media played a really big role both in the election and also how we continue to try and communicate with as many people as possible. We don't want to just be preaching or I don't want to just be preaching. When I say we, I mean my my specific team within the electorate of McKellar, but we don't want to be only communicating with people in the echo chamber. We want to reach as many people as possible and social media does provide an opportunity for that. So it is very powerful and I think will continue to play an important role in what we, how we communicate and how I listen. I do think that we will continue to use social media in a big way, um, even just talking already that things that exist at the community Facebook groups and just being able to, to comment in some of those is really important, but just letting people know again that these are things that I'm doing within the community um, is really important. Something like Twitter is, of course, very much national, but if I'm trying to speak to my electorate, then it really is the, the social media, local social media groups. I've got to ask you then about the looming legislation from the Albanese government about trying to iron out misinformation, disinformation within the, the big tech social media platforms. What's your position on that? I notice you've moved across to Meta Instagram threads. You're on that as well. You're quite active on Twitter. But who's disinformation? Who's misinformation? It's a very knotty issue, isn't it? I think it's a very vexed, very difficult issue. But I do think there are um, occasions where it's obvious that there is misinformation and where it can be harmful, I think, that needs to be looked at. Yes, so I do think it's an issue that will be robustly debated in Parliament. A lot more will come to light on that, lots of issues to be considered, but I do think there needs to be greater regulation of it by the the bodies, the platforms themselves. Should it be extended to the mainstream media? Because, I mean, they're hardly innocent of disinformation, are they? It's a very, very difficult question. No, it isn't, Sophie. No, no, it isn't. I mean, the thing about the mainstream media is they are accountable through def- defamation. The thing about social media is the big oh, pa- yeah, companies are, aren't, aren't, aren't accountable. I, I think it's a, sorry. I think it's a huge difference. Oh, Margot, yeah. using the D yeah. word, the defamation word. Absolutely. We've yeah. seen- def- defamation, if you can afford to sue them for defamation, which not many people can, you need better protections than defamation. Yeah, but at least you've got that. I mean, this is what, where the mainstream media is at a terrible disadvantage because, you know, I remember when I did Web Diary, I was always conscious, defamation, 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 whereas somehow the big tech companies, the billionaire companies can go, oh, sorry, that's not me. I'm just making money out of it. Anyway, sorry, sorry to intervene there. Ex-mainstream journal here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it would never have guessed. <laughs> so if we haven't really addressed, and I think we've got to address the other big plank that the community independence ran, and that's climate change, obviously. That hasn't been as happy a situation, has it? From where I sit, the fossil fuel industry still have a squirrel grip on the Labor government as they had on the previous government. What is the future for reform in the climate change area? Where are you sitting on that? Yes, I agree. I think that the the country has turned 180 degrees, so we are heading in a different direction, but we're not going nearly fast enough. And as we see, there's still way too many coal mines, gas mines being um, approved. So that's something 100% that I'll be holding the government to account on and continuing to highlight and raise. And that's where having that freedom as an independent to continually raise issues like that, very different from what the opposition is raising, issues that are very different. 
is something that I'll be focusing on. Climate change is and was the number one issue for people in the electorate of McKellar. Um, cost of living is now a huge issue as well, but but energy also is a part of this whole conversation and this debate. We know that renewable energy is the cleaner and cheaper energy, so it sort of hits, you know, all it hits two birds with one stone. It helps you with the your energy costs, bringing down energy costs and also acting on climate change. It's a win-win situation and I think having more voices out there speaking in favour of, you know, the opportunities that this energy transition um, will provide would only sort of support people to make those transitions or feel comfortable about those transitions. And we know that for many years, many decades, the rhetoric, the discourse has been very different to what people are hearing now and need to hear now about the the need to move, the the way that it's actually uh, more affordable, renewable energy is more affordable as well. I notice you've been using the term circular economy, a, a slightly more theoretical concept and notion, but certainly a practice as well. Any traction on that? The idea of a circular economy economy is becoming more and more mainstream and I think people are starting and government is starting to understand actually resources are limited. So just talking to the um, industry and science minister the other day, Ed Husick, talking about how we will no longer, hopefully in the future, no longer be exporting waste steel and metal scrap, but we'll be reusing that in this country. So even just thinking about things at that level, it's really important to know that our our resources are finite and we need to reuse what we have. Yes, Sophie, I've always strongly opposed the teal branding, which has been adopted <laughs> by Climate 200. A couple of reasons. It sort of feels like a party, but the main reason for me was it's exclusionary of non-blue ribbon seats, particularly in the regions. So um, I jumped for joy at your May 9 tweet saying that you were not a teal that you're a community independent. So I want to ask you, is it too late to reverse the teal branding or is it going out of fashion in the independence movement? Boom, boom. (laughs) (laughs) Let me think about it. Um, In a way, I think now what is probably happening is just that the media needed a hook, didn't they, to try and understand what had happened or what was happening at the last election and what has happened since. So the teals really are uh, the, the six that got in is what this, what they I think they think of this. I think with the movement going forward, I mean, I, and like you said, I never really bought into the whole, the name. I like the colour, but it wasn't my colour. You're sky um, blue. You're sky blue. <laughs> yes, I'm sky blue, exactly, <laughs> yellow. Um, but I think moving forward, more and more people will understand this notion of of a community independent, of independence, and understand that it's a really constructive force in Parliament as well, that actually it doesn't all come down to parties. Um, and I think that's a slow process. And hopefully, you know, not only is the media getting there, but the population will understand it more as well. And our communities as well. As you said, this is very new for many people. And I think as the greater as understanding grows about what a community independent is, then that will be the terminology that's used into the future. Teals will become meaningless because it's, a, it's a, something that happened at a point in time. And community independent really is the descriptive name for what happened. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Just on that point, um, the the trend over the last 20 years has been away from the, the major parties. So that I think you can probably say we're probably not really a, a two-party system of government anymore. First time at 2022, we got over the 30% mark for people who voted, gave their first preference to someone other than the major parties. Is that a trend that you think is going to continue? In other words, do you see a future for more independence across a bigger range of seats? Is that the direction our politics is heading? Or as people kept saying to me when I do book events, et cetera, is, oh, this was just a one-off because of Scott Morrison and it's all going to go back to the way it was, which I always reject. But I'd be interested in your view on this. I think if we look historically at what's happened with independents, once a community has an independent who's representing them, they usually stick to them. They usually love it because they Mm. really are trying to represent what's important to them at their level 
And I do think it's a movement that is very constructive and is growing and I think we'll see more independents coming in in the future as well. I think there's a lot of electorates out there seeing, oh, what, what, you know, what we're doing as independents and thinking that is a really good model. We don't need to only think about voting for either of the major parties or a smaller party. We can have, this is another viable, very viable alternative and we can see what a powerful constructive role that they play. And when I say powerful, it's powerful within the negotiations within Parliament, but also what is really important is just having more voices in the national conversation who are speaking up, you know, and having different points of view as well. It's it's very healthy for our democracy to have more voices and greater debate and more robust debate and greater account- accountability. Sophie, the bloke you beat with a 16% swing, in fact, someone said to me you were the first seat called on the night for the independence. Yes, that's right. <laughs> you know, talk about out of the blue. Um, now, he's now, Jason's now um, the New South Wales president and I'm just wondering, of the Liberal Party, I'm just wondering what signs are you seeing on the ground of early preparations to try and beat you and, and who, who they might choose to try and beat you? What, what's the vibe on the ground about how they're responding to your success? Well, I think they probably, I'm not hearing a whole lot, I must say, but I think probably they would. They are reflecting on the fact that last election they chose many of their, they selected many of their um, candidates very late in the piece and I, I think they understand how destructive that was uh, because it just didn't give them the lead in time. I mean, if they had any sense, they would be doing their preparation now. But, again, it's driven by branch. You can never sort of determine what the outcome might look like or I can't predict what the outcome might be. There needs to be a robust contest. I think people understand that it's good to have really robust candidates and options so that we it's the best thing for our democracy and we're challenged. I think it's important for the robustness of our democracy to be challenged with other good candidates. So we'll see what happens. I noticed the seats where... Um they just held on, like Paul Fletcher and Garth Hamilton, etc. They're listening posts. They're out having community discussions. You know, it's it's been a, a wonderful breakthrough. Is there anything happening in the Liberal space in McKellar where they're they're actually trying to reach out rather than? go, oh, God, you know, let's make a lot of money and, and knock this girl off? Well, there's a couple of things. One is we recently had, there was a mail out in the electorate where Andrew Bragg, who's the New South Wales senator, um, put it put out on his mail out that he was the senator for McKellar, which was news to me. Um, <laughs> news for most people in the electorate. <laughs> I don't think people ever realise that there could be such a thing as a senator for McKellar. But um, that was interesting. You know, he's there. He's our local senator, but um, actually lives in the other side of Sydney. The other thing that I would say is at the state level, there was a, a local Liberal candidate who has been in council for many years, and I think he did a lot of listening and learning from what how we played it with the community and did a very similar campaign. A final question then, Sophie, just picking up on all that you've said about this. How are you seeing the next election? Do you anticipate a, an onslaught from the Liberals really trying to get back those blue ribbon seats, whether it's yours or... Zali's again, or here in Melbourne, Goldstein, etc. And do you expect pushback from the Labor Party, for example, and that pincer movement we seem to be seeing, the Greens on the left, the independents, centre-right? How are you anticipating and what would be the hook political issues that you'd run on next time, do you think? Well, to start with the first part of your question, I, I am not convinced that the Liberal Party yet knows how they are approaching the next election. I'm not sure that they know who they're speaking to, whether they're speaking to more fringe kind of further right Liberals or whether they're going to try and win back their heartland. I don't think that that is absolutely clear at the moment. But I do think that Dutton's leadership, Peter Dutton's leadership, shows that maybe he's not looking so much at the traditional heartlands and particularly would need to change his stance on a number of things if he was going to speak to his traditional heartland. Into the future, um, look, difficult to know. I think really for me it's about staying true to the community and continuing to do what we do best, and that is being community independent, listening to the community, inform the community, get people involved in their democracy. People want to feel like they're a part of their democracy and that it's working for them and that they can be heard. And so we will do that by having 
you know, as many community events as we can on specific issues, just on uh, updates and things like that. So just trying to involve people in their community. We are hamstrung with the amount of staff that we have, which is why we rely heavily on volunteers. But we are very, very lucky to have this wonderful volunteer base and they're very keen to spread the word and engage people as much as possible as well. So really we'll try and stick to the our usual game plan, which is trying to serve the community as best we can. And, and I think, again, having someone who does view this role importantly as one of service to the community is really, I think, foundational as well. And not it's not about my own career or anything for me. It really is about service to the community. And I did see it as a step up from my role as a GP. So I do think it's it set me up quite well. <laughs> and I will do my absolute best as much as I possibly can on behalf of the community. And, you know, the community will vote how they, they believe, you know, what they believe in. It's a really interesting thing that happened in McKellar, isn't it? It's, it's, it's different than everywhere else. But do you agree? I, I had a feeling that it was really useful for you to be under the radar. It, it was actually helpful. Yeah, yeah, I do too. I wasn't worried about it at all. Yeah. We were just doing what we were doing best and that was talking to people in the community. And I knew that every single conversation that we each of us had um, was vitally important. Um, no, it was very, very exciting and I do agree that um, having been a part of that community activation was really helpful. Yeah. And I had a really strong sense that it was um, very winnable and and I felt very confident that we would win. When I say we, I mean the yeah. community independent movement in our electorate would win because I could, I'd had so many conversations and heard so many people feel so strongly about it. So I wasn't surprised on the night when we were the first to go. I was very, very excited, but I wasn't <laughs> surprised. And another thing is we had the biggest gap to make up, the biggest swing that we needed to make. And um, yeah, yeah, it was enormous. It was very exciting. Sophie Scombs, thank you for being with us again in the Transit Zone. Great to see you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Great to speak with you again. It's really good to just discuss our democracy, how we can make it stronger and what, what we're looking to in the future as well. So thank you so much, all of you, for your time as well and your investment in our democracy. Tim, Margot, thank you so much. Thanks, Peter. Thank you, Sophie. Thanks, Amini and Sophie, for finding the time. Our guest in the Transit Zone this time was Dr Sophie Scombs, the independent MP for McKellar in Sydney. Tim Dunlop's most recent book is Voices of Us, the Independence Movement Transforming Australian Democracy, published by New South. And you can find Margot Kingston at No Fibs. I'll put both links with this podcast. If you'd like to email us at the Transit Zone, here is our email address, transitzonepod at gmail.com. We welcome your comments, your questions, your ideas for new podcast episodes. Transitzonepod at gmail.com. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening, and please join us again soon right here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving the Transit, the transit Zone. zone.